This is the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I am your host, Jeffrey Pfeffer. Every other week, I try to bring onto this podcast someone from whom we can learn a lot about power and influence and how they have used power and influence in their lives to, to some extent, really implement the Stanford Business School motto, change lives, change organizations, and change the world. Today, I am thrilled and honored to be joined by a good friend and someone who has graduated from Stanford Business School, Darren Dodson. Darren is the founder and uh, managing director of a company called Illumin Capital, which we're going to get into in a minute. But Darren is an extraordinarily accomplished and an extraordinary individual. He's won a bunch of awards, which we're going to ask him about in a minute, and has just lived just an incredibly interesting life with an incredibly interesting background. Uh, Darren is an African-American who is trying to really change the world of investable assets so that more Women and people of color have a larger role in investing the multiple trillions of dollars. But before that, I want to begin, Darren. First of all, welcome to the Pfeffer on Power podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so I want to begin by asking you uh, to tell us a little bit about your own kind of personal history and story. Um, I know that you have relatives who were actively involved in the integrating of Washington, D.C. schools. Tell us where you were born. Tell us something about your family. Tell us something about your education and how you got uh, to be, uh, you know, how you got to be at Stanford, which is where I first met you. Well, it's just wonderful to be here. And I grew up in Washington, D.C., nation's capital. Washington, D.C. is an extraordinary place. As I was growing up, and currently Washington, D.C. stands at the highest Gini coefficient of a city in the country, which means the relative disparities between rich and poor. When I think about Washington, I think about one of the greatest gifts of my life, which was to grow up with all four of my grandparents nearby. And in particular, my mother's mother was a principal of an elementary school and was part of championing integration in D.C. public schools. And when I think about her, I think about the work that she dedicated her life to of integrating the schools and pushing on the principle that society is better off when people of different backgrounds come together and learn from each other. And when I think about her work, I can't help but think about my work which is integrating the financial system where indeed we also assert that the coming together of people from different perspectives within the global financial markets also leads to more prosperity, growth, and performance in, in many cases. So when I think about my grandmother, I often think about her pension fund. And although the schools that she fought to integrate were integrated, certainly her pension fund was not as a principal in the D.C. public schools. And I think about teachers all around the country who are in the same situation even 50 years later, where we are today, when the asset management business is 1.3% women and people of color. And that's of the $69 trillion managed in the asset management business. So as we kick off here, I'm thinking about her. 
I'm thinking about the big shoes that those of us that are working for justice, equity, and inclusion and performance in the global asset management business are also orienting towards. And we indeed stand on the shoulders of giants like her. And one of the things I would also love you to talk about, thank you for that. I think this is very, I mean, you have a powerful personal story. One of the interesting things, and I think one of the remarkable things that you did uh, was after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, where you organized people and actually uh, capital to help build the city. Briefly, recount what you did after Hurricane Katrina and how you did it and why you did it. Sure. When I first arrived at Stanford Business School, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans almost the day that I arrived. And I had the opportunity to organize a number of my classmates. One of the principles that has always served me well in my life is that education alone doesn't do much. But when education is applied, learning grows exponentially, certainly for me, I think for lots of people. And that being at business school, while extraordinarily powerful, became exponentially more powerful when myself and 70 other students could apply it to the context of working alongside of New Orleans entrepreneurs. So we had the privilege of doing that post-Katrina during different breaks in school and then eventually moved to New Orleans and built a program across Stanford Business School, Harvard Business School, Berkeley Haas, and a number of other schools, including XLRI in India and Xinhua University in China. And these thousands of MBA students and corporate leaders came from around the country and around the world to spend more than 100,000 hours working with local New Orleans entrepreneurs, rebuilding their lives and rebuilding their businesses. Big insight from the program. Although executives and MBA students came to really impart their wisdom in the initial years of the program on entrepreneurs and help transform their lives and businesses, when we really did the surveys and dug into the data, it was those that came from the outside who were equally transformed by the experience. So that was an incredibly powerful set of years living and working in New Orleans. I think that this experience really resonates with one of the seven rules of power in that networking is one of the instrumental ways of engaging and moving people to do something meaningful in post-Katrina New Orleans. For example, I've built a network across almost nine years of Stanford Graduate School of Business graduates, as well as graduates from other schools around the world, as well as corporate leaders. And I've built that around not only getting to know them informally, but being in a fight for justice, equity, inclusion, and rebuilding people's lives in one of the most critical narratives in the nation's history. And that's because people want to serve and they want to help other people. And enabling that process, there's a unique dimension of building depth of relationship with many people. So I just wanted to highlight that as one of the intersections of our collective work. Thank you. And that's a very inspirational story. And I believe, if my memory serves correctly, which it doesn't always, you actually were honored with an award. Can you talk a little about the award that you got for your work in New Orleans and who else you won that with? Sure. One of the 
powerful aspects of indeed the work in New Orleans, but certainly the work at Illumin Capital currently is making sure that entrepreneurs of color and women-led firms have access to capital. And Tulane University honored me and Jim Coulter for the Entrepreneur of the Year Award and Social Entrepreneur of the Year Award, respectively, for our work in building alongside of many, many others, an inclusive entrepreneurial ecosystem in New Orleans. And certainly in the context of the work within Illumin Capital, which I continued to work on afterwards, and Jim has been a sort of a great person to watch within the world in terms of his leadership within private equity. But as I look at our work at Illumin Capital, Certainly, our work is dedicated to reducing implicit biases facing women and people of color, and we're currently invested in more than 25 countries around the world with a strong focus within the United States and building strategies that not only reduce bias, but are geared towards creating economic value by reducing those biases. In some ways, it's sort of like taking the parking brake off. All of us can probably relate to trying to drive a car with a parking brake on. And that's what we think investing is like if you don't work on your biases towards women and people of color. It's like driving an economic engine with a parking brake on. So by going through our curriculum and going through our lessons, what we're trying to do is really take that parking brake off so we can get the full optimality within our investments and the overall ecosystem. And for those who don't know, uh, Jim Coulter is a very senior partner in TPG, the Texas Pacific Group. Is that correct? That's correct. So, by the way, congratulations on winning that award. Uh, Spend a little time now talking about Illumin Capital with your assets under management. I think you've already alluded to the fact that your objective is to try to change who manages these $69 trillion in assets. And I think the other thing you mentioned is that you believe, which is, I think, exactly right, that to the extent you remove implicit bias and you have a higher level of diversity in managing these assets, that the performance of asset management actually goes up. That is correct. And when I think about Martin Luther King and a lot of the things that he did in his life, one of the things he would often articulate is that when he looked at the United States Constitution, he was so thrilled because he was trying to make the country actually do what the Constitution said rather than begin from some scratch basis where there wasn't a fundamental document that underlied what the power that he was trying to bring to different people. And of course, Black people, but all people, because we know that when we integrate schools and when we integrate society, we have more prosperity and growth. One of the things that I'm really glad about and had the privilege of learning at Stanford Business School is fiduciary duty, which is the document that we look at oftentimes at Illumin Capital and that we partner with our fund managers to really realize the true vision of that document. And what we see is that in an experiment that we conducted where we secretly tested 180 asset allocators alongside of Stanford Spark, an incredible research center at Stanford led by Professor Eberhardt, we found that systematically asset allocators 
overlook and underestimate black fund managers when AB compared to white fund managers, and that this effect increases as the performance increases, which is contrary to fiduciary duty. So what we found is that the leading pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, university endowments, and financial institutions in the world without really working on their biases are systematically leaving money on the table for their constituents by not going out and including high-performing Black fund managers, high-performing women-led funds, et cetera, that it requires a proactive process and practice in order to really live up to these underlying principles of fiduciary duty. Similarly, to live up to the principles of the Constitution in Martin Luther King's context. And it's interesting, one of the findings, which is not necessarily intuitive, is that the discrimination or the implicit bias was higher, the higher the performance of the minority-led funds. That is correct. And thank you for putting a fine point on that. And of course, that's contrary to what everyone in investing is trying to do and achieve. So, you know, as my venture capital professor at Stanford Business School, Andy Rycleff would say, you know, one of the things when you build something that you set out to be successful in, make sure that you're number one in venture capital, that you're non-consensus. In other words, you would go around to lots of people and ask them, and some people would not see what you're talking about. And the other condition is that you're right. <laughs> and we we seek to be right all the time. But just to bring this home to Illumin Capital, we are a strategy that is non-consensus by definition, because we have a team led by people of all backgrounds, women and people of color included. And we are building something that is built on the foundation of research that suggests that others are systematically overlooking and underestimating the people that we're investing into. And therefore, we're built on an investment principle that all other investments that we look to be successful for within the context of the global financial markets, that they're going after latent value in the economy. So that finding was enough to build an entire fund on, and that's looming Capital. And we also wanted to publish those findings, which we published in the Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, so that the world would know that this is a condition that exists and not only to keep these principles internal to ourselves, but to make sure that the boards of pension funds, the boards of university endowments and investment committees and others would examine their biases and slow down and really make sure that they're going after this often overlooked and underestimated market. Yeah. So you are a living example of the Stanford Business School model, change lives, change organizations, and change the world. You have accomplished a great deal, but you have also, as a human being living in the real world, run in to opposition, to obstacles, to barriers, to people who did not necessarily say, wow, I'm going to get on board with this immediately. And so as you've had experience trying to accomplish 
profound social and organizational change, I would ask you now to reflect on what of the seven rules of power you have used and what you have found useful and how you think about bringing power and influence to bear on accomplishing this profound social mission. Well, I think I'll start with power rule number one, which is get out of your own way. I think in my life and work, the cultural cues and values of which I was raised is focus on letting your work speak for you so that you don't have to come on to a podcast like this and talk about (laughs) all of the things that you're doing, because the world will see if you just put your head down and focus on your work. I don't think that that is true anymore. I think that there's a good chance if we didn't speak publicly about a looming capital, those that want the system to stay the way that it is and are currently benefiting from the way this system stays or believe they're benefiting from the status quo will try to stifle the mission intentionally or unintentionally of a looming capital. So therefore, it requires a proactive, consistent branding and rebranding of our mission. And that's important for another reason as well. There are thousands of fund managers around the world that have been building profitable enterprises and businesses, achieving top-tier results in terms of their investments that didn't know that the higher they perform, the less likely they were to get more capital. So it helps them to reconcile what they're experiencing on a daily basis which is another reason that's critically important for us to lift up our voice as a firm, because those that would be overlooked and underestimated, those that are trying to do better to serve in their fiduciary capacities within large pension funds, et cetera, they'll know about each other and they'll be able to see each other in a different light, not as something to do as charity or on the side of what their normal responsibilities are, but something in the center of the river of their mandate, connecting with each other, looking for each other until they find each other. So that's something that we think is incredibly important. Just another reason why it's critically important to get out of our own way and not just focus head down on only doing the work, but to lift up this message and this narrative for the movement that we're a part of. And I hear you as you answer that question, talk about a couple of the other rules of power, which is to build a brand. I mean, obviously, as you start Illumin Capital from the ground zero, you clearly needed and have built a brand. And you have also, I think, acted and spoken with power. You have tried to craft a message in a way that taps into people's emotions, because emotions are important, and I see you nodding your head, and to speak in a powerful way about what you're doing. And of course, networking, you've already talked about. So I think those are all very, very important um, aspects of what you've done. And to some extent, you also exemplify rule number two of breaking the rules. I think you have not only gotten out of your own way, but you've been bold in some of the things you've done. Why don't you describe some of the ways in which you have, you know, expanded opportunities uh, by not letting existing norms or rules hold you back? Well, the asset management business is $69 trillion in capital, of which only 1.3% is women and people of color owned and run firms. 
you know, I can walk in the room and break the rules. So literally by showing up and choosing a career in which there is a call it tacit and sometimes explicit signal that I'm not supposed to be there. That's one way in which I've decided to spend my life breaking the prevailing norms or the rules. Now, the interesting thing about asset management is that one of the fundamental rules is being broken, fiduciary duty. And I'm pointing to that rule that's consistently being broken by locking myself and others like me out of the system. So ironically, in this case, <laughs> we are we are certainly breaking the rules, but in some ways we're pointing back to the original rule that created the institutions in the water in which we swim and operate as asset managers and saying, although many of these rules need to be broken, this one fundamental rule that all people pretend to abide by, but we know that many people are consistently breaking through their implicit biases, through overlooking and underestimating women and people of color or not having them in their selection set at all. We have to rethink the rules that were made in order to found the industry that we're in. And we have to make sure that we break the norms so that we can be seen and evaluated in a way that is fair and consistent, right? Which is not happening. So it's a little bit of an ironic question. So to, to summarize, number one, we break the rules through our existence as a firm that is Black owned and led within the asset management business by definition as one of the 1.3% of the $69 trillion in capital that is managed. Every time we go to a fundraising event, we're seen as different. And we'd like that difference to be elevated to uniqueness that has a perspective that can see trends that look like the trends that our country will reflect over the next 30 years in greater magnitudes than ever in history in terms of population and demographic growth. And we ask and demand to be seen as such, as experts in our own experience, as experts in the field where we spent more than 30 years collectively as a team. And then we also point to the rules that are consistently broken by those that suggest that those rules are the rules that should be the rules used to keep us out, namely fiduciary duty, namely the idea that many people are trying to do fiduciary duty or execute it by not investing in Black-led funds when our research points to precisely the opposite, that if we are not systematically evaluating Black and women-led funds within our mandates at pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, foundation endowments, university endowments, then that is the real challenge to us executing the rule. I want to end with a final discussion with you about this. One of the things that I see you doing as part of building your firm and as part of changing the world of investment management, you spend a lot of time traveling. You spend a lot of time on the road. You spend a lot of time basically conveying the message that you're conveying today in the podcast in person, in front of groups around the country and literally around the world. And so you have been really a spokesperson 
person for this very important point of view, and you've been really tireless in your efforts, for which I commend you. Do you want to comment at all about that? Sure. When I think about the importance of sharing the message, I think about the idea that many women and people of color are building high-performing funds around the world, and they're pitching asset allocators And what we found in our research is certainly that the more that they perform, the more bias they face. So they may think that it's themselves that is the problem currently. So the reason why I travel around the world, and it's been five continents in the last two years, the reason why we share our message and our research is because those individuals are trapped in an unjust model that's bad for financial performance for asset allocators, and it's bad and unhealthy for themselves to be systematically devalued as human beings and further to be devalued as the value that they bring to the marketplace. So both of those things are bad things that keep us motivated as a team to go out and share our work, our research, our strategy with many around the world and, of course, within the context of the country. One final note is that as the war in Ukraine reaches new levels and energy markets get spun into many, many different challenges and overall market volatility is going up and down, we know from many of your social psychology colleagues that bias increases at periods of high stress. And when people are trying to make decisions really quickly without much sleep in the context of these increasing challenges facing our world. So we're reminded, particularly at this time, of the importance of our work and of the importance of those that we are working on behalf of, both the asset allocators who are trying to see past their biases to see the value in the marketplace. And then of course, the fund managers who are creating this massively powerful growth in our markets if they're funded in order to get us out of some of the challenges that we're in. So that's a a final thought, but it's been wonderful to connect here and always deeply appreciative of our friendship and your leadership and our Uh, school in our world as well, Jeff. Thank you. This has been the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pfeffer, Stanford Business School professor. Every other week, we have somebody on this program to talk about how they have used power in their career and to change lives, change organizations, and change the world. Today, we have been honored to have on the program Darren Dodson, the founder and managing director of Illumin Capital to talk about making change in who manages our investable assets. Thank you so much for being with us, Darren. Great to be here.